right, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And as you're turning there, uh, I'd just like to open up with a simple illustration. It's this. Many of you stink at giving directions. I know this because you've tried and you're from Baker. So you tell me stuff like, oh, go to this tree out west of town and using terms like west, like I have any idea where that is. And they go turn on the gravel road next to Martha's house and, and then you keep going. I'm like, you know what? How about I just follow you? And follow seems like it simplifies the process. But you go, great, and then I follow you and you leave me in the dust on some dirt road and I look up and your car's gone. I see dust and I'm driving around out in the country. And so I do the same thing. I, in fact, I was notorious for it back in the day when I kind of fractured a few speeding laws. And I would say, oh, just follow me. And about five minutes later and three stoplights later, I've lost everyone that was following me. Today, the passage that we're going to be looking at is an amazing passage of scripture because it simplifies directions. It simplifies what we're trying to do every single day. And it's one of the perhaps most difficult questions that is dealt with in the New Testament. And that's how does the Old Testament or the Old Covenant relate to the New Covenant? And what did Jesus actually do? Did he cancel the Old Testament? Are we to throw that out? And then if so, why? And then are we following Jesus in the New Testament, New Covenant? And are we just adding on to the Old Testament? Well, Jesus really simplifies this in this simple section between Luke chapter uh, 5, verses 27, all the way through 6, 11. And we're going to break it into two sections, the first half this week, the next half next week. But it really will help you if you run into people and ask, well, what about all those strange laws in the Old Testament? Or how does all that work? Well, Jesus, in his amazing uh, teaching, simplifies it tremendously. He uses some illustrations and he uses some images that just simplify it to a level that we can understand, yet it doesn't quite go into all the details that maybe we would like. But uh, hopefully it not only helps you answer that question, how does the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, relate to the New Testament, but it helps you to understand what we are to do every single day in our lives. How are we to live? And what does that really look like? So let's begin uh, in chapter five, verse 27. It says this, after this, he went out. So what is after this? If you recall in the earlier part of Luke, he had been, Jesus had been specifically fulfilling the role of the son of God or the son of man. So when you begin in the first part of Genesis, we are introduced to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fall, they sin. They fail to obey the commands of God. So Jesus being the son of God, the son of man, he fulfills what Adam failed to do. Then he demonstrates dominion over both nature, disease, and demons in the following chapters in Luke. So what, again, Adam failed to do, Jesus does. So this is the setup to where we're coming here in chapter 5. So Jesus is the perfect son of God who rules and has dominion over the earth and his authority, and he is teaching in his teaching, he says he has the authority by demonstrating the authority, the ability rather to heal and cast out demons. 
He is the authority to forgive sins. So that is a radical departure from the Old Testament where he had to go and make sacrifices there uh, in Jerusalem. So things had changed dramatically. All of a sudden we go from Adam and Eve and their failure and this incredible amount of detailed law and tradition that have been built up to Jesus fulfilling all of that. And he begins to simplify it even further here in verse 27. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. So where were they at? They were near the Sea of Galilee, a little bit to the north. And right there on the edge was where there was a border between Galilee and the lands to the north. And he says, he saw a tax collector named Levi. Tax collectors in that day were hated because they had to earn their own living. Uh, it wasn't like there were laws that they had set percentages. They were to basically get as much as they possibly could because they had to bid on a given territory. So they would say, all right, Rome, I will give you $5,000, for instance, for the privilege of collecting taxes in this area. And so once they got that, they were um, dependent upon collecting not only the taxes that Rome wanted, plus to recover their 5000 so to speak, and then any money on top of that. So they were very harsh and very tough to deal with and hated in that area. And so Levi was a tax collector and he was sitting at a tax booth. Now, if you have a New King James or a Holman Christian standard, it says tax office. No, he didn't drop by like H&R Blocks. That, that, they didn't have that back then. The King James actually has it probably the most descriptive. It says, and he was sitting at the receipt of custom. So when we travel internationally, for instance, and you go through the airport and you have to go through customs, you have to declare certain purchases that you made abroad. And if they fall under a certain dollar amount, you have to pay taxes on it. So that's the sort of scenario that the image that you need to have in your mind is at a border where an individual is collecting taxes and you're trying to decide like, honey, do I really talk about that diamond ring that I bought over in Europe for a cheap price? Do I really want to declare that? And you have this guy kind of eyeballing you and you're like, those are new clothes, aren't they? You need to declare that. And it's just this battle. It's, it's, it's this moral dilemma. Are you going to be honest? And especially if the individual that is approaching you is dishonest. So Jesus is on the road. He's come across a hated individual whose name is Levi a tax collector. And he says to him, follow me. Now, once again, follow me, just like if I were to give you directions, follow me can be very, very simple. But if you interpret follow me wrong means you can just kind of coast and hang back and, and are, are kind of assured that I'm going to be watching you, yet I take off and you hit the first light. Follow me gets really complicated when you don't see me anymore. So what does follow me mean? Does it mean that we all have to move to Israel and wander around kind of wondering what Jesus would have us do and dressed in cloaks and sandals and we're disciples over there in Israel? Well, the crowds during Jesus's day just simply would follow him around wanting to be healed, wanting to be fed. But Jesus in this simple phrase, which introduces this entire section of scripture is simplifying what it means to move from old covenant to new covenant. You see, follow me is different than follow the law, right? 
followed the Old Testament law was all the sacrificial system and all these different things. And now he's introducing what it means to truly follow God under this new covenant. We're no longer trying to follow rules. We're trying to follow our Savior. And he begins to explain that even in more depth uh, in the coming verses in Luke chapter 9. So, verse 28, Levi has a decision. And he says three things. In leaving everything. So he left his obligations. He left his career. He left his ability to provide. He left everything. He rose and followed him. I like how he pictured this, this image of him rising. I mean, why do that? Well, for years, if you've been in Baptist churches or other evangelical churches, we used to have what would be called an altar call. Or if you've ever seen a crusade by Billy Graham, it was an altar call. One of the things that he would ask and people would ask people to do who had made a decision to trust in Jesus was this simple act of getting up and walking forward and standing before everyone and making that decision public, that public proclamation. It was just an outward image of an inward decision. And, and it draws a lot from Jesus' calling fishermen and calling tax collectors. It was this very powerful image. Is it necessary? No. But it's a powerful image of this decision that you have to make. And if you're sitting in here and you've never understood this, Jesus, both then and today, didn't require everyone to quit their jobs, just the opposite. Much of the New Testament was written to letters at churches where there were people, they had lives, they had jobs, they had kids just like you. Levi was a special individual. And again, this is moving from Old Testament to New Testament. So Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. And so the apostles were specifically called by Jesus, the 12, for a unique ministry. And they literally did leave jobs and homes and families. But for you and I, what does it say in Luke chapter 9, verse 23? It says this, Jesus teaching to the crowds, he said, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would, whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So all of a sudden, follow. Yes, you're no longer following this law, and it's really complicated, but now you're following a Savior, a person, and this is actually more challenging. Let's just pause for a second. Like, you at some point this last week made a decision to put on your calendar to be here at this moment in time. It was an outward action. For most people, that's what Christianity is. It's going to church, reading a Bible, saying some prayers, maybe giving some money in an offering box. Really super high level of Christianity is maybe serving and volunteering and going on a mission trip, right? All outward activities. Those are all good things. Just like the law was good, but the law was meant to lead us to Christ. To give us this opportunity to not just do outward things, but to change our heart. In order to do that, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says we must take up our cross daily. So here's the picture of following Jesus. You get rid of all your dreams, 
all your desires. And first and foremost, before you even look at any of that, you're like, everything is you. All, all that I have, God, it's yours. I am yours. My kids are yours. My, my finances are, are yours. Not only am I going to do that, but that sinful nature that I still have, even though we're born again, Colossians chapter 3 talks about crucifying the old self, putting off the old self, anger, wrath, malice, sexual immorality, all of those sorts of things. He says, get away, do away with that, but put on all those good things, right? Love, kindness, compassion. So the idea of following Jesus is not outward works or legalism, but it's inward transformation that results in outward activity. So in this simple phrase of follow me, Jesus is teaching what it looks like from moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. And then he uses some further imagery here um, as things flow from this one individual Levi choosing to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Verse 29, chapter 5 says this, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. So he's going to celebrate, right? He made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Verse 30, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Oh, man. They were the kind of the old bitter church lady of their day, weren't they? Not that we have any old bitter church ladies. We have sweet church ladies. Yes. But we've all run across, you know, showing up to a church maybe for the first time as a guest and some, you know, person that's been there for years that ought to be just full of Jesus. They've all of a sudden become full of legalism and their traditions and they look at you like, why didn't you wear a dress? Why didn't you, you know what, you need a haircut. That was more common back in the day, not so much today. So the Pharisees, notice this, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they saw people living a sinful lifestyle and they looked at them with hatred and derision. They looked at them through a lens of, I'm better than you, why do we even spend time with you? Jesus, on the other hand, looked at the tax collector and says, come, follow me. And then Levi, when he meets Jesus, he gathers together all of his sinful friends and says, I'm having a party at my house. You guys come. And they weren't coming just to party. They were coming to hear the gospel, the good news. Again, back in the day, that's what we did with people who first came to know Christ as their Savior. Tell everybody. There wasn't this outreach fund that we had to pray about and figure out ideas on how to share Jesus. It was like you spend your own money, all that you have, throw in an extravagant party, pay for all your friends, get them all over to your house. Then if you can't, the preacher will come, I'll come, and we'll share Jesus. That's what we'll do. That was their outreach activity. Now that gets harder the longer you're a Christian because you've shared with most of your friends. And so those outreach activities are fine. But if you've never ever even thought of inviting all your friends that you know to a huge banquet at your house, maybe this summer, maybe a barbecue out by the lake, 
and say, hey, guys, come. I want to tell you about a guy who changed my life. It's the best news ever. I'm paying for it. You guys just show up. It's a cool idea, and it's amazing. But just make sure you don't invite the legalists who look down at your friends. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You have to, to share the truth when you start talking about Jesus. The whole reason Jesus came that he elaborates on here is to call sinners to repentance. It's not just God loves you, right? Yes, God does love you, but he doesn't desire that you stay in this sinful um, enslavement of a life. The good news requires talking about sin to those friends that you're going to invite to the party, and it requires talking about repentance. Repentance is, hey, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect and never sin again, but I'm going to try and I'm genuinely sorry. We'll worry about the plan later, but please forgive me, God. I acknowledge my sin. I am a sinner. Forgive me. There's nothing I can do. That was the, that was the purpose that Jesus reveals here in following him. And here's the cool thing. If you're worried about sharing that message, what was Levi's response? Levi's response was, yes, because repentance leads to joy. It leads to peace. He's like, I'm throwing a party. I'm forgiven. You don't have to worry about that message. True repentance leads to that. Now, there are some that are not going to respond well. Uh, John 3.19 says this, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So you're going to have a mixed reaction. But the joy and the eternal impact far outweighs the negative reactions. Now here's where things get confusing. In your text, if you're looking at a traditional written Bible, it probably separates chapter, uh, verses 39, uh, 3 to 39 into a different section. It should not be separated. It actually flows all the way into chapter 6, verse 11. This entire passage is this transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. In verse 33, it says this, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So who are the they there? There's a problem. The they is referring to the group just above in verse 31 and 32, and that seems to be the Pharisees. But no one talks about themselves in the third person, the disciples of the Pharisees. If you're a Pharisee, you don't say the disciples of the Pharisees. You're like, my disciples, right? Well, in Matthew, it identifies this group asking this question as the disciples of John. But that doesn't really help out either, because once again, it mentions the disciples of John here, and they're not talking about themselves in the third person as well. So who is the they? Unless you go around talking about your, yourself in the third person, and you think that's normal, and if so, we need to talk, because <laughs> you shouldn't. Like, well, Scott said. No, I said. 
So what's happening here? Well, what's happening here is a party. And at a party, everyone kind of gets around and murmurs. And slowly, if there's some sort of controversy at the party, yeah, people behind the scenes gather together. And the Pharisees were like, why did, why did Levi invite these tax collectors? I thought he was saved. I thought he was righteous now. And why is Jesus there doing his thing? And so were the disciples of John. So Luke is just making this general overall comment that everyone, they, they were all making this statement, probably, I believe, multiple times, just like what would naturally occur if you threw a party and there was some sort of controversy, a little murmuring in the background. And they had, a, they had this issue. They didn't like tax collectors and sinners. Big, big challenge. Do you think you're so righteous? Do I think I'm so righteous in Jesus? Now when I drive by in Baker City and I see someone who is clearly involved in an ungodly lifestyle, do I look at them in derision? Or do I look at them as a person who's lost and who needs a savior? Who needs forgiveness? It's really, really easy to make those sorts of judgments, almost subconsciously. Especially if they're doing something that's annoying you. I, if, if you've driven around Baker lately, you can kind of see more and more kind of drug houses uh, appearing where there's lots of garbage and lots of abandoned vehicles and all sorts of illegal activity occurring in those areas. And you can look at them, well, man, they're driving down my property value or wow, there's more crime. This used to be a great community before those guys moved in. Or do you see them as, hey, they need Jesus. Huge opportunity. It's just an entirely different perspectives, and the Pharisees were definitely not looking at it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus answers them, though, in verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's the beautiful thing once again. This repentance leads to joy. And he answers the first of their question. He doesn't answer the part about the eating and drinking. He just answers the individuals. We're going to focus on the sinners, those that don't know who I am. If a church, if Blue Mountain Baptist Church ever becomes a church where it's all about us, we have failed tremendously. If we're not looking at our neighbors, at our nation, at our world, and investing in them as well, in going and sharing, inviting. I mean, if you've just watched the news the past couple nights, do you look at the riots and go, yes, that's great. No, you're probably like, man, that's terrible. And you think of all the reasons why it's terrible. But did you stop and think, what would happen if someone shared Jesus with them? What amazing testimonies they would have. Like a year later, like, I was involved in those riots back in the day. Or maybe even the police officer that is accused of killing this individual. What would happen if he got saved? It's just looking at the lens of people through a different lens. It's that eternal, I'm following Jesus perspective 
what would, how would Jesus look at these people? What would he have me do? Different all the time. Not only that, but just this idea of repentance leading to joy. If you're a fellow believer in here and you, you know Jesus and you've lost your joy, I don't know about you, but I've discovered it's not because I don't attend church enough. It's not because, you know, whatever podcast I'm listening to of some pastor, his message wasn't good enough or the worship wasn't good enough. It's because somehow, somewhere along the way, I, I'd set my eyes and my hope and my joy on the things of this world, maybe people, maybe my finances, maybe my job or my career. In other words, if you've lost your joy, don't blame the church or people. Just think, do I need to repent? Do I need to come back to that special place when I first met Jesus, where life was a joy, having been cleansed and forgiven? Well, he continues on, he says, and he, verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So we identified the they, but the eating and drinking, what was going on there? Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He simplifies this. What is a wedding? It's a celebration, right? Now, some of you were maybe had a, a rough, you know, first <laughs> marriage, and you're on your second or third, and you're like, eh, that wasn't such a good celebration. But marriages, biblically, are supposed to be a one-time, one for, once for all, once and done. It was supposed to be a celebration. Now, I'm sure there was some, like, father-in-law or future father-in-law at one time thought, you know what? We're going to celebrate this wedding. Instead of me paying $1,000 for a meal, we're going to have a fast. <laughs> we're going to get by cheap. That's going to be our way of celebrating, right? No, that doesn't happen. You show up to a wedding, you expect to be fed. You've got to sit through like two hours of a wedding. You better get something out of it, right? So Jesus just points this out. He says, while the bridegroom is here, we're not, it's silly. We're not going to fast at all. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It, it would be ridiculous. Verse 35, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He's just simply saying, there's going to come a period of time where my disciples will fast. And that period is between his arrest, crucifixion, and his resurrection. It is not indicative of the church age, so to speak. For instance, uh, John 16, 20 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Post-resurrection's accounts of Jesus says, why are you weeping? My peace, I leave with you. Peace be with you. Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So, Yes, they did party while Jesus was there and had a great time. And then there's going to be a party today as well. It was this period of time where they weren't sure what was happening as far as the disciples, and they would mourn, as hopefully you would mourn if your Lord was crucified in front of your eyes. 
Verse 36, he also told a, a parable. And this is where he begins to use imagery from just simple things in life, from Old Testament to New Testament. So his first imagery is simply this. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, which is fairly obvious, self-evident. And the piece from the new won't match the old. Anyone here have a yard sale before? Anyone here enjoy them? All right, if you do, I, I, I can offer you some counseling later. Uh, we had a yard sale this past weekend, and that's why I'm kind of still blurry-eyed, getting up early, having to deal with the people wanting to be there at 5 in the morning or whatever. So we sell a lot of stuff, and on one section of our wall, we have clothing. Judy's old clothes, my old clothes. By day two, I'm really offended. No one has even touched my old clothes. <laughs> Judy's clothes are like going like hotcakes. I'm like, I'm selling my old shirt for a dollar. Like you would pay more than that for a rag. And so, but the problem was I realized my old clothes had holes in them. Like I will wear stuff like it's out of fashion. I will wear it so long it comes back in fashion, right? So by the time I'm getting rid of it at a yard sale, it's holy, it's marked up. And so my clothes don't sell at all. Now, how silly would it be for me to go buy a new shirt, cut up my new shirt, and put it on my old t-shirt that I'm selling in a yard sale? It's just stupid. Well, Jesus uses this simple imagery, and you'll see it played out even more in chapter 6 when it's talking about the Sabbath and healing. This is the imagery of the old law. And we're not in the New Testament simply trying to patch up the old law like somehow there are mistakes in it or there are problems. No, they're different. One is old, one is new. One was used for a specific purpose. The new has come. We don't put on the old again. It's the new. So you have the old covenant, new covenant. And we're not trying to patch up the old covenant and keep it. You want to get rid of it. In my shirts, I didn't sell a one. They just got packed up. And I'm not even sure that Salvation Army will take them. But that's the imagery. So if Old Testament and New Testament is confusing to you, just think new shirt, old shirt. Once the old shirt is full of holes, it's, it's no longer useful. It, it, it had a purpose, but the new has come. So we don't get rid of the Old Testament. I'm, please don't hear me say that. But we're not just trying to fix the Old Covenant. There's an entire new covenant. And he explains that in the, in the coming verses. Verse 37 he uses two new images, actually. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. So two images here that are critical. New wine and the, what they go into, the vessel. So you have new wine and old wine and old wineskins and new wineskins. So he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled because it ferments and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And there's a textual variant here in the, the um, uh, King James that says, and both are preserved. We're not sure uh, on that variant, but it says, but new wine will be put into fresh wineskins. So what is the new wine and what are the new wineskins? Well, the new wine, remember, he's following me. He simplified it. We're no longer following the law. We're going to follow Jesus. And this new wine is representative of Jesus. Just like when we take 
the Lord's Supper, we drink his what? His blood and eat his flesh. It's this imagery that is carried throughout the New Testament. What's one of the greatest uh, miracles that people know so well at a wedding in the Gospels? They've drank all the old wine, and then Jesus turns water into new wine. And the new wine is better than the old wine. So Jesus is the new wine, right? So, but the new wine requires new vessels, requires new wineskins. So in the Old Testament, you have people following the law, but in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he talks about being born again. We are new creations in Christ, the New Testament says. So he creates in us a new person. Now we still have that old body of flesh, but we are new wineskins. And the new wine is put into new wineskins. So Jesus isn't coming just to basically uh, help out the old covenant, but it's an entirely new covenant. And so Jesus now dwells in us. So following God, so simple, Monday morning, tomorrow morning, getting up, following God, you're not required to go to offer sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled all of that. You're not required to seek God in the sense that he's out there somewhere. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit has come into you and he is dwelling in you, has sealed you as a deposit and guarantee. So you have God, you have this relationship. Now all you have to do is follow Jesus by denying yourself and your desires and following him and his teachings. That's it simplifies it greatly. But there's a problem. Verse 39 is where we close. Here's the problem. Jesus says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, Ah, the old is good. What's that about? Well, most commentators, and I believe, it's just simply this. People are pretty happy with their old wine, their old drinks. And to try out new wine would require change. It would require risk. You see, people who are following, even today, legalism, trying to incorporate the Old Testament laws into Christianity, don't eat this, you got to do this on a certain day a week, and, and they're trying to piecemeal it all together, that's really comfortable because those are outward activities. Once again, coming here, Pretty easy, right? You got good coffee, you got a comfortable seat, climate controlled. But did walking in here, drinking coffee and listening to me, did that change you at all? No. You have to make the decision to change you. You have to make the decision of what you've read and heard and learned to apply it. That can get harder. This sort of follow me requires true change. Now, yes, you can get caught up in Christianity legalism of going to church, reading your Bible, praying, and all this stuff that's all good, but it's, that's an, not an end in itself. It's an end to the means of this relationship. So a lot of people would say, well, the old wine's pretty good. I don't think I'm going to try the new wine. 
They want to try to hold on to legalism or churchism, if you will, today. It's a decision we all must make. And I know many of you have made that maybe years ago. But Jesus said we, we are to take up our cross daily and crucify ourselves. Repenting. I hope you experienced that so that you might experience the joy of what it means to really willingly, desirously to walk away from everything. Because when you're willing to do that and that's your attitude, you now have an eternal perspective. You're willing to risk everything and nothing can rob your joy in that moment. Not death, not sickness, not financial ruin, none of that. Because you're walking with your Lord and Savior and he is all. I pray that you do that every moment of every day this week. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for me to get up here and say, follow me as if I'm doing it all the time. But I know it's really easy to, to set my eyes on the next 10 minutes, the next hour, whatever task that I'm hoping to accomplish. But Lord, help me to set back and see this world through your eyes. Help me to see everyone in this room at this moment as just an incredible blessing, people that I have an opportunity to build up to love in you. Help me to not have a negative attitude towards people, but see them as individuals who need salvation, Lord. Give me the boldness, give everyone the boldness in this room to speak up and stand for their faith. Not only stand for it, but demonstrate it in their life, full of joy, full of happiness, even in the midst of sorrow. We love you and we praise you. Amen.